Ishan, Yi, Jill, I am honored. I am excited. I can't wait for this conversation, and I know everyone else in the audience can't either. Because we've been doing deep dives into this climate space with reforestation, carbon offsets and such. And one of the key areas we just have not had a chance to figure out or take a look at is this question of how do we plant more trees to potentially draw down carbon. That's a very complex problem to address and solve. And when I heard about terraformation... I, I just knew that we had to get on a show and hear right from you guys as well as to how you're thinking about solving problems in the space, how far you guys have gone, and just overall exploring the impact that you guys are building towards because it seems like you've had a couple of pretty big updates and uh, I think also a crowdfunding campaign I saw there online as well. So, uh, Ishan, Yi, Jill, uh, I would love for you each to give a brief intro about your background and your role at Terraformation, and if uh, one of you want to take the, take the lead to explain a little bit about Terraformation, we can jump right into the fun stuff. I'm Ishan. I'm the CEO and founder of Terraformation. Uh, I've, most of my career has been in tech since around 2000, 2001, um, so I was previously at PayPal and Facebook, uh, did a brief stint at Reddit, uh, and then I decided to, you know, pivot my research focus onto climate change a few years ago, um, and that's what led to Terraformation. Awesome. Yee? So, hey, thank you so much, Thornell, for the opportunity. Um, so, my name is Yee. I lead the growth and special projects teams uh, at Terraformation, and I helped Ishan get the company uh, started back at the uh, end of 2019. Um, like Ishan, I have a tech technology background. I was a hardware engineer uh, in Silicon Valley, um, and then uh, wound up meeting him uh, through early days at PayPal. Uh, and then, what else did I do? Founded four companies after PayPal. Uh, Casually and four did companies. Stints. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it's the Silicon Valley way, right? Um, maybe that's a subject of a whole other podcast. But, um, but yeah, uh, but no, it was uh, Silicon Valley, I think, was, was definitely a, a productive time and, and, a, and a good time in career, but um, very much uh, felt the weight, I, I think, of uh, climate change and really wanted to roll up my sleeves and, and just be more proactive and, and action-oriented um, in doing this. And so really, really glad to be working on Terraformation now. Uh, Jill. Hello. My name is Jill, and I am the Chief Forestry Officer for Terraformation, and I've been a forester for about 27 years in Hawaii, and I've, I've worked in many different ecosystems, and different landowners, and I um, lead the uh, Hawaii projects. Uh, we do ecological restoration in Hawaii, and I lead the international partnerships. We have worldwide partnerships that we're developing. So you've been restoring forests of ours for 27 years. Yes, I. Uh, that's what I've done for my entire career. Wow. And I'm a, I, I'm a seed, big time seed banker. <laughs> I, I'm a seed collector. So that's my area of focus. So for the people in the audience and uh, especially me, what what does forestry restoration or your job typically look like what what does that is it you going out there and specifically picking certain kinds of trees and plants to actually plant 
before you uh, go in about trying to restore a plot of land? What, what does that typical job look like? Well, the job um, is where I meet with landowners, and I've, I've worked with the federal government, the state of Hawaii, and private landowners, and we look at the land, what level of degradation or what it needs, and what kind of land use model we want to we wanna rebuild. And we've, you know, I've specialized in native forest restoration, but um, I also do a lot of agroforestry hmm. and timber silviculture. So there's, there's different, and, and lot, many ecosystems. So when you look at a, a piece of land, you look at what the ecosystem type is. Even if you don't want to do native restoration, you still look at what is the original ecosystem type, what would that land have been before it was disturbed, and then you go from there and develop a project. And nope. that has a lot of parts. <laughs> yeah, no, I can imagine. I, I completely get exactly why now that's that's a critical part. Um, I guess, so it's it, it, it kind of sounds like there's what, what it is. <laughs> What it, what it really sounds like, if I had to boil this down, and correct me if I'm wrong at all in this case, it, it seems like there's a, if we consider trees as a carbon sequestration technology, it's nature's technology, God's gift to earth, whatever you want to call it. It is a technology that has already been proven, we know it works, and it can draw down carbon. The challenge has always been trying to funnel the necessary capital and the necessary talent as well in order to scale reforestation at a level that makes enough sense such that we can actually hit our drawdown goals from trees predominantly or effectively not needing to depend on breakthrough technologies getting commercialized within 20 years and outperforming what their initial lab results were. And obviously there's always a difference between what happens in the lab and what happens in the real world. So it, it kind of seems like what you guys are trying to do is build that immediate solution to find a way to drive the necessary capital in to ensure that we're planting and reforesting or or completing enough reforestation projects in the next 20 years so that we can avoid that two degrees of warming. Is that a correct understanding of what terraformation is doing? It's a funnel to try and drive additional reforestation projects? Um, yeah, we, we think of it as, um, we think of it as a, as a pipe to convert money into trees in the ground. Um, and that conversion is complex, right? It involves creating, um, you know, like working out project specifics, um, like you said, training enough people to be able to do it and increasing the throughput of mm. that pipe so that it's, it's roughly, um, we estimate, you know, one to $3 trillion per year, right? Of conversion of money into trees. Because there's plenty of money, not enough time, not enough people, um, but with enough trees, we have we could create the capacity to draw down um, all or most of the emissions and get us to that three hundred parts per million target that everyone talks. Yes, about. yeah. I think we have most of the entire executive team here on the call today. 
And I would love, I always enjoy hearing founding stories. So I'd love to very briefly hear a little bit about Terraformation's founding story and what's driving you guys to even build something like this. Well, you know, with the three of us, you know, we, we came together over time. So I'm going to have to sort of synthesize sure. this a little bit. Um, and, and I guess, like, in my case, I was motivated by something pretty okay. mundane. And it was just that it was too hot. <laughs> and it wasn't, it wasn't a normal hot okay. day. It was way too hot, right? It, unseasonably, historically too hot. And I'm like, okay, this climate change thing has got to stop. And... And I, and I think like, you know, that was like my moment. I think everybody who works in climate change, they have a moment, right? Where you, it's a personal experience or, or you read something or you understand something or, you know, you're a scientist and you do your research and like, here are the numbers, right? You have your moment. Um, and I think we all had our moments at various times in our life. Um, there was, I guess, like an, an early time when I had the property you know, in Hawaii, that was like this dry land property. And I'd begun building, we, we had nearly completed construction of the solar desal facility mm -hmm. there. Um, yeah, so that is currently, I still think, I think it might still be the world's largest fully off-grid, 100% solar power desal facility. Um, I, I've been saying that for two years and I'm really, you know, hoping someone finally builds a bigger one because solar desal is the future, right? So something, right. So we built this and it looked like it was actually gonna work, right? So remember if you're the first and the largest, you don't even know up until you've got it working that it's gonna work at all. So it looked like it was gonna work. And so I was looking around for the right forester. I, I don't know how to quite describe this. There's just like, you know, and it took a bit of intuition and you know serendipity and kismet to you know to find Jill, right? And and somehow she you know she has lots of contracts. She's very in demand. But somehow I got her to come out to the property and take a look at it. And it's just like this dry, windswept. You know, there's hills, right? I don't not dry windswept plain, dry windswept hills, um, with a few you know kiave, invasive kiave trees that have managed to take hold. And I said okay, Jill, could you restore this forest if I provide you with water? Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, and, and so, so she said like, you know, she looked at it and said, yeah, I, I think so. I can, I can see the forest. Now, and, and what I didn't know at the time, so, so she agreed to take the project, right? She agreed to, to work with me on this crazy project, right? Because, you know, it's just a desert. What I didn't know at the time was that she had told other people that she was going to do this. And they all, they were like, that's not going to work. That's totally going to fail. <laughs> right? like, and there, there are doubters, right? Like there's, there's no way it's going to work. Um, and, but it's, it's like, like a testament to like, you know, how like crazy and eccentric we all are, <laughs> um, which sometimes something needs to be done and you got to figure out how to do it. Um, and so we tried. Right. And in theory, it should have worked. Right. Because the conditions were correct if you could provide the water. Um, and so we did it. Um, and it turns out that, you know, how we talked about like native forest restoration is really important. Right? You have to use native species because they're co-evolved with that environment. Right. Like non-endemic species don't work. And so in restoring them with native species, it turns out that as soon as you remove the bo water bottleneck, right, once there's water. Um, all of the 
bacteria and the soil organisms and the fungi that are co-evolved with those native species, those accelerate the growth of the trees once they're returned to hmm. the region. But they want to be there. I was like, there's no way, I mean, <laughs> right? Like, how fast are these really going to grow, right? Jill was like, oh, no, it only takes 10 years, not 20. And I'm still like, really? <laughs> right? um, but yeah, there's some that are like as tall as I am. And they're, I don't know how old they're. That was one of the more recently planted I ones, know. Right? They're, I they're, they're certainly, the whole project is, you know, a year and a half old or something. And, um, and they're, they're, growing very quickly it's it's the forest is becoming established i remember that um what the first time i went and did a consultation ishan i i found there was nothing it looked like nothing native on this property and and i found two spe two native species on the property and i and they were actually seeding and so I was like, oh, here's, let me, you know, collect these seeds. And I was collecting, and he was looking at me. I'm like bending down in the dust and <laughs> it's totally, the wind is insane. It's really strong there. And I'm trying to hold on to these seeds. And I knew there was a seed bank in the soil. I knew there was a foundation there. And, and that solar desal was definitely a game changer for that project and it, it allowed us to do what we're doing and it's very very exciting to see and i really wanted to do that project i really it's it is very challenging <laughs> and um this was before terraformation started so i didn't know it was we were gonna you know evolve into terraformation but it was it was a really great challenge uh, nevertheless, and I'm I'm so glad that we, you know, I was happy to take that on. So that's my. That's that's amazing. That's yeah. that's amazing. So I guess I'll have to make a trip out to Hawaii for part two um, of covering terraformation. So I guess then that I guess the best place to start here is there there tends to be you you obviously mentioned that you know it takes that first 10 maybe 20 years of tree maturity and jill or you either of you might also have some context on this as well the first 10 years of a tree's life isn't significant in its drawdown ability but as you mentioned hey we can plant a thousand trees or ten thousand trees today and then in 10 years they'll begin to do what we were hoping they would do my question always comes back to the common saying that we hear in this industry of carbon sequestration is that the question of why can't we plant more trees is something that just, it's just not a viable solution. We need to invest into direct air capture. We need to invest into um, biomass storage through fallen trees. We need these 5,000 different solutions. and. And definitives don't exist in the world and truth. You know, it's like there's never just black and white solutions. It's not just trees. It's not going to just be direct air capture. It'll be a blend. But it seems like reforestation, while important, most people tend to look at it as that's not a viable solution. Why is that a common, I guess, misconception that people have in the industry. And I imagine that has to do with a, a lack of understanding of what it takes to make a reforestation project valuable and B understanding how to actually scale 
um, reforestation efforts at a global level. Do you guys have any insight? And we can hit on both or one at a time, depending on how big or deep of a Pandora's box I've opened on both sides. Well, I, I can I can answer, I guess, like two okay. parts of that. One is, is a very general thing, which is um, in many cases, reforestation is... So if you think of like the development of a carbon capture technology as having three sure. phases, right? The first phase is prove in the lab. Second phase is make it into a product. And three is scale okay. it. There's often, and people do this unconsciously, an unfair comparison when it comes to forests. Now, I'll say forests instead of trees, because it is, in fact, a forest as a unit of carbon sequence. Um, people compare the challenge to forests of scaling with the challenge to something else as prove in the lab or make as a product. You've probably very, very rarely heard of any other competing solution talked about in terms of its challenge, its scaling challenges, right? Like, for example, when you talk about, so, so here, here, I don't want to actually like criticize direct air right. capture too much because I actually think there's like a very good place for this. Um, but, you know, when people talk about direct air capture versus trees, you know, they talk about like, well, there's not enough land for all the trees or, you know, how are you going to plant all these trees? Nobody talks about how many direct air capture installations you would need. Right, like the answer is something around forty to fifty thousand, um, and that'll take like years these, like, to build, draw down. Right. Well, I mean, they'll work if right. you can build them, right? But there's a whole supply chain for all the things that you need to build them. Absolutely. Right now, there's a supply chain for trees too, and and that's all part of the scalability challenge. And so it's often this thing where it's true. Global massive reforestation has challenges, but they're lesser than the scalability challenges of all these other ones. And often the other ones aren't even being considered on that basis. They're being considered on the basis of does it work in the lab? Hmm. Trees are already past that. So there's <laughs> the tree one is running there's, the there's not a direct conversation on the scalability today based on the current status of trees as a quote-unquote technology versus biomass storage versus using kelp versus using direct air capture, whatever concrete that sequesters carbon, all of these technologies are viable solutions. Maybe. They've just never been compared on scalability today alone. So... Right. That... that the major difference that affects these conversations and causes people to think um, forests are not a scalable gotcha. solution. Now, there is one other, um, I, I guess like it's, it's a unique um, criticism okay. of forests, um, which has some validity. And until recently, it was completely okay. valid. Um, and, and this is that the amount of forests needed to offset, you know, all of them to solve the whole problem was more than the available land on which we have available that we could that has enough natural rainfall to plant mm. forests. Right. Now now the, the funny thing about this is is twofold. One, uh, it was calculated that we have enough land to plant enough forests to solve about twenty five to thirty percent of the climate change problem. Um, and, and so there's this weird, you know, psychological quirk where people hear that and they say, oh, it'll only solve 30% of the problem? Okay, forget it. Like, don't do it, <laughs> right? And then they, then, then they just dismiss it, right? But that's actually irrational 
what you should do is if you have a solution that can solve 30% of climate change, you should immediately do it, right? Because no other solution does more than like 1%. Right. Right? So um, there, first there, were, there was that weirdness. And so one of the things that we needed to show, um, because humans are kind of irrational, want something that's like, can you get all the way, is, is it possible to get more land, right? And, and before it wasn't because, uh, primarily just because of a lack of water. Right, that there is in fact enough land, but it doesn't get enough natural mm -hmm. rainfall. And you can regreen deserts if you can bring in enough fresh water. But there's no way we could do it at scale, right, to solve a planetary level regreening of dry, desertified, degraded lands, uh, deserts that in ancient times were forests that we could reverse, right, with the current freshwater scarcity problem. Except that the only other source, except the other only other source of fresh water is desalinating seawater, which uh, previously was only economically feasible if, if it's very energy right. intensive, right? If you use fossil fuels, um, and if you use fossil fuels to desalinate water to plant trees, then you're just you're just emitting, right? You're like right. going backwards. Um, however, one of the with solar um, becoming cheaper. benefits of solar. Exactly. Yes. So many people have not yet fully understood, fully understood the consequences of cheap solar. Cheap solar basically means a whole bunch of things are possible, um, subject to certain criteria. And one of the things that fits that criteria is in fact desalination. So now we can desalinate using clean energy, arbitrarily large amounts of seawater. Um, I actually believe that this will solve, this will actually change the world. It will solve the freshwater scarcity problem, um, and actually, and in fact, lead to an era of like unprecedented economic growth worldwide. But let's narrow our focus to just solving climate change, um, and it will, in fact, it provides enough water to irrigate enough land that we could then grow and restore enough forests to offset all or most of. Okay, the so that's even more to to, to unpack there then. Um, so it, it turns out that, you know, if you look at climate change, there are all, all the solutions fall into one of two buckets. So I'm, I'm going to start from sort of a high, high level, you know, intro. And, and they're essentially like reducing emissions or removing CO2 from the atmosphere. Um, there's a lot of people who are working on reducing emissions, uh, not as many people working on directly removing CO2 from the atmosphere. But that's something that we're definitely going to have to do. Uh, because if you read the, the recent IPCC AR6 report that mm -hmm. just came out, um, it actually says that if the world meets all of its net zero commitments by 2050, which is already an extremely ambitious goal, right? People who are kind of like, oh, we're never going to do this. But let's say we do. Uh, we're still going to have two degrees of warming through the, the end of the century. And, and beyond, right? The models actually only go to the end of the century. And so it's not like it stops right. there. It's, we don't Life know where continues. it is. Um, and, yeah, and, and so so today, by the way, we've had, I think, 1.1 or 1.2 degrees of warming. So all of the crazy weather events and the flooding that you've seen um, are the result of 0.1 degree of warming. <laughs> so, so the whole like limited to 1.5, limited to two degrees, we don't even know what's between here and there. And this has just right? been point one. So, yes, this is point one. Um, so, 
if we so even if we hit those net zero commitments, we still have a bunch of extra CO2 in the atmosphere floating around. So we need to remove it at scale. Um, if we can reduce it back down to pre-industrial age hmm. levels and hit net zero in 2050, then we can actually have the problem solved around the middle of the century, right? Then, then we'll probably okay. be okay. Um, it will be a tough few decades between now and then, um, but, but okay. we can do it. So if you want to do something at massive scale, uh, that strategy is dominated by the per unit economics which is to say, what is the cheapest way to remove a ton of CO2? And can you do a right. lot of that? Now, if you look at all of the possible proposals for that, uh, all of the methods we have for removing CO2, uh, right now, planting trees, right? Like trees are just like by far, by an order of magnitude, by far the most effective right. one. Um, the most efficient, the most cost-effective, and most importantly, they are immediately scalable. Um, Many technological solutions have been shown to work, but it takes a much longer time than most people expect to bring like a technology to market and then to scale it to worldwide distribution. Hmm. Um, a lot of people don't realize this because Silicon Valley marketing is very effective at making you feel like, boom, we created this new thing overnight. Right. But, you know, if you've ever tried to invest in a new science or a new technology, you realize it takes a lot longer to go from, hey, we showed that this worked in the lab. Now we're going to create a product that people can use. And then we're going to build up this whole supply chain and distribution infrastructure so that, you know, it has like reaches global right. scale. Right. Like in 1999, I got my first cell phone. Right. It was like, you know, one of the first like consumer affordable cell phones. Um, the first cell phone that was ever built was in 1973. So that took 20 years to go from lab prototype. Actually, actually that was the first like, you know, product to something that most consumers could buy in 1999, right? I remember it was kind of a financial stretch for me because I, I was, you know, like still in college, right? Um, and I think they like saddled me with like a two year okay. contract or something. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but it, it's it's still like it's still 20 years later that now cell phones have reached uh, 70 percent global right. penetration. Right, that's 20 years to take what is arguably one of the most useful inventions. Yeah, for ever. human communication. Right? There, there's no shortage of demand. Yeah, exactly. Right, it's totally oh. changed the world. Um, but it still took 20 years from it's a product to everyone has it. Many people don't realize that uh, in order to solve climate change, whatever solution we have is going to need to scale to an unprecedented planetary degree. Right. Um, and so when you do that, there's a, there's a lesson that I learned many times painfully in Silicon Valley, which is if you want to do something very, very big, you have to use proven reliable components. You don't want to use new technology. Um, you know, if you buy the latest iPhone or you buy the latest anything, there are bugs. Absolutely. And they're not that many bugs, right? It's like, as a consumer product, it's okay. You're an early adopter, it breaks 1% breaks of the time, you're kind of okay, your phone crashes, whatever, right? But if you're gonna deploy a billion of anything or a trillion of anything, you can't have a 1% error rate. It has to be much, much, much lower. Uh, all of the problems have to be very well understood um, because 
the complexity and difficulty of doing the scaling alone is enormous. You don't want to be dealing with bugs that you don't know Absolutely. yet, right? If it has bugs, you want them to be very well understood. Right. And so alone among all carbon drawdown things, trees have this property, right? Like we are familiar with trees. They've been around for thousands of years. They were around before humans, right? Um, in the areas where we would need to provide additional water, we can now do so at relatively affordable rates using solar and desalination, both of which are at least 50-year-old technologies. All right, they're, they're now becoming very widespread because of cost, right. because you know companies have become very good at manufacturing them. Um, there's multiple, it's like a commodity technology now, right? Multiple companies compete on the basis of price, which is exactly what you want um, because those components are you know, now very Absolutely. reliable. Um, yeah, so, so there's this new, there's this concept that you know, not, not everyone really even understands or knows exists, which is scalability. Um, because you sort of think of things as just growing on their own, right? You think of industries growing on their own. It's natural. Growing on its own. Um, yeah, exactly. Growth is just a natural thing. But sometimes you want to take something and you want to grow it very, very, very fast. Um, just for whatever reason, right? Like in the you know recent past, like scaling businesses is like, you just want to make your business really fast. You're really big, really fast. Or the common uh, Twitter feedback is, just throw every VC dollar into Twitter, Google, Facebook ads. And that's how you grow something really fast. Yeah, yeah. You just want to grow, yeah, I just want to grow it really fast. Um, in our case, we want to grow and implement the solution really, really fast because time is running right. out, right? The, the whole point of fast is you're trading off money right. for time. Um, interestingly, uh, the problem of fundraising for climate is not as big a problem as most people right. think. There are many, many, there, there's a lot of dollars like willing to go into climate. Um, but, you, you know, unlike, you, you know, there's, there's certain sort of economic things that you can do where you just move money from here to here and then you've like produced something and now that you profit, right. right? Climate is not like that. Climate is real molecules, it's real atoms, right? You, we won't solve anything until we really actually remove CO2 molecules from the air and we stop putting more in it, right? Um, and so converting money to actual physical change, the removing of molecules is a more difficult Absolutely. task, right? It can be done, right? We use the, uh, we use the most unit effective thing, which is trees. And then the question is, is novel, right? Because um, foresters um, and ecology, you know, ecological restorationists, right? There's a lot of names for these groups, you know, environmentalists have actually been telling us for decades, you know, like restoring forests is the key to climate change, right? Like this is how you solve climate change, like plant trees, right? Like we, we've heard right. plant trees all our lives, right? Um, but those groups are small. They've been chronically underfunded, right? Just all their lives, right? And the people who are really good at scaling organizations and efforts, um, there's a, there's a non-intersecting Venn diagram, right? Like all of those people are, they're in tech companies, they're in multinational conglomerates. There might be a couple in like the largest governments, right? But they're, they're not working in climate. Um, and so what we are is we are merging those practices. Okay. Because 
with trees, the interesting thing about trees is like trees are actually very scalable. Um, sometimes people say, hey, don't trees take a long time to grow? And the answer is yes, they do. They take like 10 to 20 years to grow. But there's two sort of answer, sort of counterpoints to that. The first one is deploying technology takes a lot longer than everyone thinks, right? Like I just you know, described, if, you, if you've proven something works in a lab, it's gonna take you 10 or 20 years to productize it. And then once you productize it, to get it to global scale is another 20 years, right? Like with cell phones, 20 years. Um, trees have already skipped the lab proven part and the product proven, you know, productization part. And they're ready to scale now, right? And so they may take 10 to 20 years to grow. Got it. But also they are very parallelizable. So if you were to plant a tree now, you'd think, oh man, this thing won't be mature for like 20 years, right? But you can plant a thousand trees at the same time. If everyone is working together, we can in fact plant the necessary number of trees now by the end of this decade. And then in 10 to 20 years, we will have mature forests, which will constitute a large enough carbon sink to offset all or most of human emissions, coincident at the same time with, let's say all the decarbonization, emissions reduction people succeed, right? And we reach our net zero commitments. Then around 2040 or 2050, we will have dropped emissions to zero and we will have a huge carbon sink that will pull all of the excess CO2 out of the atmosphere. And then the problem is solved somewhere around the mid-century instead of two degrees of warming <laughs> through the entire industry, right? So if we do both of these things, we can pull that off, all right? And so, so there's a lot of work on reducing emissions. Um, and what we have to do is we have to take this, you know, by now very well understood process and practice of native forest restoration. And we can go into more details about why that's important and that's key as opposed to just like plant trees in a plantation. I, I, I guess then, Yi, since you work on the, the growth side of terraformation, what are you thinking about when it comes to scaling these reforestation projects and finding new land or discovering land that can be reused so that we can get to those goals that Yishan is outlining where one day we're truly at that point where we can say, hey, trees kind of solve the problem for us. We still need all the other technologies, but yeah. we've already scaled a solution that is viable. How are you thinking yeah. through that process today? So, yeah, and I think the, the the question of what really makes a system scale is such a deep area and it pulls you into all of these sort of adjacent areas. Um, and I think that's actually really at the core of what we mean by, by scalable thinking. Um, so for example, if you think about covering billions of acres or planting trillions of trees, right. and you think about average just human productivity, right? A forester is putting trees in the ground. You very quickly get to calculations that tell you it's going to take tens of millions of people, um, person years of labor, right? Uh, in, in each year, uh, hundreds of person, hundreds of millions of person years of labor uh, over the span of a decade in order to pull this off. Um, and then you think about, okay, uh, what are the very largest human organizations? 
today, right, that are focused on producing some, some form of labor, right? You can look at some of the largest employers on the face of the planet, for example, McDonald's or, or Walmart. They each employ about 1.9 or 2 million people, right? Um, and as soon as you start to think about that, uh, you realize, okay, this is – like Terraformation's mission cannot be about we ourselves – somehow putting in that much labor or planting all those trees or covering all those acres ourselves. Right. Instead, scalability has to mean starting this global movement whereby hundreds of companies the size of McDonald's or Walmart are created in the next decade uh, and are equipped with everything that they need to go and affect that amount of tree planting. Um, and if you think about that, then you realize, okay, uh, you're not talking about just creating forests. You're talking about creating forestry-based livelihoods, right. actually, for tens or hundreds of millions of people around the world. Um, and so that means you have to transition the entire mode of funding forests from sort of this donation or ESG or CSR-based model of like, I, you know, I, a corporation made a donation and, and, and you know, sponsored – a hundred thousand trees or a million trees or whatever the number may be. Um, and instead you got to think about, uh, uh, if you're creating a livelihood now, not, not just this one time event of a tree planting, right? If you're creating a long spanning, uh, livelihood for, for, for people, then you really actually need to create these very enduring business models that can be funded through a multi-trillion dollar asset class that needs to be created that will fund tech accelerated forestry, right? Um, and if, again, I just keep pulling the, the, the thread here on the sweater, right? Um, every bit of technology that we create, right, can't, again, because it's not just going to be the work of terraformation itself, right? right? Every piece of technology, every piece of hardware, uh, the specs, every piece, every code, every line of code of software, right? It all needs to be open sourced because we need to create this massive movement where anybody can come and plug in, right? Um, even down to the level of like the individual foresters themselves, right? Jill and I had this conversation very early on in the company's history where we thought, you know, just thought experiment, right? Like how many trained foresters are there in the world? And you can look up, there's like several hundred forestry training institutions in the world and you can think about their attendance and how many you know matriculated graduates they, they they might have per year and how many of those people are still active etc and you'll get to a number somewhere between you know a couple hundred thousand to like a million trained foresters in the world who can do this kind of native regenerative forestry work okay well so then we're not we're not in the business of just hiring foresters and putting them to work we're actually we need to actually be in the business of training an entire new generation of foresters all around the world, right? So when we talk about growth, when we talk about scale, and we talk about you know preparing the world for the for this kind of scalability, um, like those are some concrete examples of like transitioning from donations to an asset class, transitioning from like you know proprietary technology to open technology, um, thinking about employment versus like creating a whole generation of forest entrepreneurs, right? Like that's that's the the, the, the type of thinking that we're engaged in day to day. And then we, like literally, we actually have initiatives against each of those kinds of efforts. And, um, and does that result so that, in, that does, does that result in like a community? So is Terraformation focused on trying to grow the number of foresters across the globe? Are you guys more yeah. of an educational platform then? Yeah. Or are you guys the entity that's driving capital from the corporations, the governments and such into the hands of individually trained? Because like it, it just sounds like, I mean, again, I'm just soaking up this information as I can imagine the audience is too. And there's 
so many levels of progression where we can even apply mm. technology like Yishan said on turning a des uh, desert into a potential thriving forest because of desalination technology. And, and getting to that vision is beautiful. I'd love to understand then what do you start with today so that at least we can start having, uh, because I imagine a million foresters across the globe and Joe, feel free to hop in on that as well. But I imagine a million is probably not going to cut it. And it proves true to the, well, I guess maybe trees aren't the solution kind of, I guess, misnomer that uh, people currently have about it. So w what do we start with today and yeah. how are you guys thinking about it? So, so I would say this is, this is one of the touchstones, I would say, of, of terraformation just internally. Because um, tackling, if you just drop, you know, go plant a trillion trees as like one massive goal on like on, on a group of, of any size group of people. I mean, it's hard to say where to get started and hard to, you know, to, to, to start to take that first bite, right. Or take that first step. So really what we did is, is to think about um, starting off just very project by project tactically, right. If you have 50 acres of land under your control today and you're trying to get to billions of acres covered by net new regenerated, regenerated forest uh, over the course of a decade. Well, there's basically eight more zeros to add on from the back of 50 to get all the way up to billions kind of scale, hmm. right? Nine zeros. Um, and so if you had to tack on eight more zeros uh, in the course of a decade, well, then let's, let's create a goal for ourselves to basically increase everything that we're doing by an order of magnitude each year and if we manage to do that successively, eight years in a row, then you're done. You get over the course of a decade, you can give yourself two two mess up years. Uh, um, you can get two buys, <laughs> um, and, and still achieve your goal in a, in a decade. So that's literally like if you talk to anybody from Terraformation and you say 10x, they'll be like, "Yep, I, I get it, 10x." Okay, <laughs> that's our goal, 10x every year. <laughs> uh, and so, and, and so like it seems kind of crazy. But it has one, uh, you know, saving grace to it, which is, it brackets for you very clearly what you need to do every year, All right? So every year we can say, okay, we planted this many trees across this many acres. Next year the target is ten times as much. So everything falls out of that, right? It's like, okay, negotiate land access deals of this many acres. Um, some, sometimes you have to do a few things like years before, right? We have to collect seeds, right? You have to germinate the, a certain number of plants. To do that, you have to have a certain amount of nursery capacity, right? Secure this nursery capacity, right? You need enough people. Hire this many people, right? You're going to need these machines. Get these machines. Um, a lot of this is, in fact, uh, it, it's very nuts and bolts blocking and tackling, except most people don't think about it in this conscious driven way of, reach that 10x this year, back out all the things you need to do, and that's part of the scalability okay. banking. And so we apply that year after year, do 10x. Um, there's now, now there's there's some like sort of phase changes. One of them is like doing them as an organization. And then the other one is at some point you transition to like effecting other organizations and helping them do it, right? But in the beginning, we have to show that we can scale because you're sort of the champion for this mode of operation so that other people can look at us and copy us and, and say, hey, we can scale at, at this rate too, right? Like right. there's hope. Um, one interesting thing is like people think there's no hope. They can't reach, you know, this 
this, this scale. And we say, okay, here's the route. It's really hard, but these are the steps that we're going to take. And that way you can actually yeah. set a standard for it. I, I guess then, because now this, this opens up or gets closer to that asset class concept both of you have brought up so far. And once we kind of understand this growth mentality towards tree and re uh, tree planting reforestation, then I think it really branches into like the technical end of like, okay, well, what do we have to think about from a forestry end? But, but starting on this asset class kind of conversation, where are you guys seeing in this process of 10xing or driving uh, the acquisition of new land, finding new nurseries, germinating the right number of seeds, training the right number of people. Where does terraformation play in that? And how are you demonstrating to other organizations, other entities that, hey, this is something that makes money or it can be, capital can be driven into this? Is it through, again, issuing carbon offsets? Like, how are you guys thinking about it from an economic end? Because it it kind of makes sense now when, when you kind of simplify it to 10x, that's not simple, but we've seen that kind of growth happen before. Um, and I'm sure again, S Silicon Valley backgrounds provide you significant years of experience and understanding what that kind of growth mindset works. So I'm excited to see that. The 10x every year approach definitely kind of makes it more digestible as a outsider looking in as to what we need to do rather than just telling me, hey, yeah, we got we gotta get to a trillion trees in the next decade or two decades. So how are you guys thinking about it from an economic end? We've now simplified this problem to, okay, we have to 10X our training of individuals who can do reforestation. We have to 10X the number of seeds germinated, trees planted, nurseries acquired and so on and so forth. But how are we thinking about this economically as terraformation to be able to move to that next level yeah so this is this is really where i feel like we we take to heart what what ishan was saying earlier on about you know don't don't try to invent some brand new technology and like immediately go scale it to the world right i, I would say the same danger would lie in you know trying to invent some brand new business model and immediately scaling it to the to the world um so we we would like uh, our forestry projects to rely on very tried and true and proven business models. Um, and there are many uh, when it comes to, to, to forestry. Um, there's a very long-standing um, business, uh, an, an entire asset class. There's REITs and TMOs and bonds that are written against timber forestry. Uh, same thing, there's investment vehicles that, that produce uh, food forests. This is a you know, centuries-old practice um, of, of growing, you know, canopy, uh, cover canopies of, of trees and then growing crops under, underneath them, um, which tends to be actually better for, for both land rehabilitation and uh, productive use uh, of land. Um, silvopasture uh, is another business model um, that can uh, blend together um, uh, ranching practices together with, with forestry. So there are these very old proven business models um, around how to generate revenue and, and profits from uh, plots of land and, uh, th that are put to forestry use. Um, the question is, how do you harness those together with modern finance? Um, how can you create bonds or how can you create uh, asset-backed securities or how can you create REITs that are specifically targeted 
uh, at producing those kinds of land uses and what kind of rate of return would you be able to generate from them. Um, and the models that, that Terraformation has been building um, basically show that you should be able to produce a pretty interesting rate of return to investors, especially if you combine those sort of proven business models with the potential upside of carbon credits and carbon, carbon offsets um, that can come from uh, you know, provably, provably verified, uh, uniquely trackable um, carbon credits that come with these biodiversity benefits that that you get with with native forestry. So, the the combination of these uh, of these revenue models is what we think um, is really going to to power this the, the creation of this new asset class. Um, and this is the, this is the the thing that Terraformation is is trying to offer right to the to the forestry finance sector. Okay, so so that actually really makes a lot of sense. Uh, so I come from a solar energy DER background. And we see this conversation come up in solar finance, where a lot of the times we're currently financing based on the amount of production off of a system, as opposed to valuing potentially what the grid might compensate us for in the event of demand response events and so on and so forth. So what you're saying is there's multiple revenue streams when we're looking at reforestation, because the typical one as an outsider looking in is carbon offsets like okay produce a carbon offset i guarantee 10 years out or 20 years out 100 years out um, it depends on which registry you're working with in verification org but effectively you're coming in and you're saying okay well carbon offsets is only one such potential revenue stream that we can tap into and when we bundle all of that together and turn our forests into an asset class that people can buy on Robinhood for all we care. Um, at that point, we've started to be, we've started to open up the ability for people to invest into our forests and into our planets in a way that traditional just standalone carbon offsets markets have not been able to funnel because the demand is there because consumers yeah. are purchasing, corporations are flooding into purchase so it seems like the capital is there. The only thing that is lacking is being able to open this up to the mass market to participate easily in and also be able to generate returns so that it's not just a, I donated and it's a nice tax write-off for that year and I did it once or That's twice. Right. So you're turning That's this right. into a true asset class. Well, what are the That's revenue right. streams that you know, an outsider is missing when we're thinking about reforestation. Yeah. So, I mean, so I, I kind of brushed over a number of terms and I, w and I would love to get Jill actually pulled into the conversation too, because Absolutely. she's, she's really, I think the, the expert on this, but I'll just, I'll leave you with one other observation. Um, so for, for these revenue streams, the, the agroforestry, like growing crops together with a forest, silvopasture, ranching under the cover of, a, of, of hardwood or forest, um, sustainable uh, silviculture, right? So sustainable timber practices. There, there's all these different business models. Um, the, the, the key thing, though, when you talk about appealing to a mass market, I really think that that's a, that's a profound um, and really deeply meaningful uh, aspect of, of Terraformation's work because uh, it's not just about reaching mass market investors. It's actually trying to turn forests into things that are productive, uh, of course, environmentally, but also economically productive for the people who are right there, who live in and amongst the, the, the forests. 
Um, that's how you can generate the enduring forest, like a forest that, that, that is gonna stand for 50 or 100 years, uh, really needs to come from uh, both like a social and an economic situation where the people in and around the forest have the incentive, the economic incentive to keep the trees standing rather than going to, to, to cut them down. Uh -huh. um, and so a lot of these business models, when we come to talk about, you know, growing crops under the shade of, uh, of trees or ranching under the shade of trees or, or sustainable silviculture, right? Like those are all business models that are designed to benefit the the, the people right there in the in in the vicinity of the forest um, Jill maybe maybe you can help us um, with uh, with some examples of, of project sites uh, where this is happening well I want to I want to talk about um, I, I I'm glad that you talked about communities and um, so some of the things that terraformation does that's different than other um, reforestation companies is first of all we take a very holistic approach and we are forming alliances as we said we're trying to build a movement and community so we're totally um, inclusive and we form alliances and we've been discovering who the players are who are who are doing reforestation uh, globally now and what is the quality of their what is the quality of their projects one of the things that's happening hmm. is there's a big appetite for high quality projects and the way terraformation works is that we have a science team and when we work with a partner we look at that whole project what what kind of carbon sequestration opportunities is that is that project protecting biodiversity that that but biodiversity should be tied to forest restoration. So you're supporting regional um, forests and that's gonna be beneficial for communities and for the planet. So we look at that. We look at what is the seed availability in regions? Do they need help with collecting seed? What happens is as people expand their projects, they narrow their funnel on what they plant because they don't collect seeds of the full community of species that they need to, 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 to really create a forest. So we help them. We have seed scientists who help them with, with seeds, with collecting seeds and banking seeds. And then with nurseries, we help them build nurseries. A lot of the hotspot areas in the world are in the global south, in tropical regions. And those regions have very rudimentary nurseries and their equipment is, is, needs an upgrade. So we help build projects. We look at what is the foundation of that project and how can we help it to scale? So that's our approach, very holistic. It looks at the entire project and we look at where are the bottlenecks, where are the pain points for that project to scale and then we help and that includes training we help with training and and we just you know whatever that project needs funding training equipment seed you know support so so that's that's our approach and and um you know working with native communities there's always there are people everywhere in the world who love the nature. They love their home and they want, they have the aspiration to do the work. So we want to support those people and we want to grow more new forest creators and help more people do the work. And that's going to, that's going to create the high quality forest that we can actually fund. Um, that's actually, see that, that actually clicks something because it kind of ties back to what, Yee, I believe you were mentioning about McDonald's. So then Jill, 
when you're talking about training a community up, that's almost like setting up a new McDonald's franchise. You're providing them the blueprint saying that, hey, here's the seeds that you want to use because our seed scientists know that the this area requires these 15 different kinds of trees and plants in this specific region. Then you're going on, okay, this is what you have to do to continue to maintain these forests. This is how you need to teach your children, people who move into your community, how to actually continue to grow and scale and maintain this area or this plot of land, which is currently your home. So you're turning something that previously was third-party organization, comes in, helps, you know, reforest, maybe plant a couple of trees and then leaves. Instead, you're trying to focus on community reforestation. Now, how are you thinking through that process, Jill, when you're coming into a new project, be it anywhere in the world, be it uh, the Amazon rainforest, because that's the first thing that popped into my mind. When you pick a new site or you pick a new community where you want to help set them up for the future and ensure that they can start to reforest their own land and you guys can come in and support, what is that step-by-step process that you have to think through to be hyper-efficient and ensure that you guys are still hitting your motto of 10x every single year? What's that process look like? Yes, that's that's a great question. I mean, the, the 10x thing, it's got to be built on quality. So if yes. you try, so one of the reasons that large tree planting projects have failed is because they're, they're, they, they just focus on speed and they don't focus on actually establishing and maintaining forests. So, so that we know is, is the real key. And if you want to develop carbon projects, if you want to develop business, you know, uh, projects, then you've got to, you've got to have success. So that's, that's a very, very important part. And when, what we do is we help the projects think about all of the aspects. We have soil scientists who look at the history of the region. We look at the taxonomy. We look at what species occur in this. If it's like, if you're talking about in Brazil, the Caatinga forest, if you're talking about a certain type of forest, you look at what is that forest comprised of, what species, what is the rainfall, what supports that forest. You, do you have nurseries? Do you, are you collecting seeds? Where can you get seed? Is, where is a, we call them reference sites. Where are wild areas where you can collect those seeds? And you start to build alliances locally and regionally and, and build up those projects. So we look at all that. Not only that, but terraformation is also different because we, we have the tech geniuses. They are building apps. They're building tools for foresters that we need. They're building seed collecting apps and databases so we can manage our collections. They're building planting apps. We have an app that is in development. It's, we're just releasing it now where you can mark every tree you plant with a picture and it gives you a GPS point. And what that does is that sets up the foundation for a carbon project in the future. Because if you prove that you planted that seedling without a doubt, you've just set up your foundation. In the future, in five years, when you go to verification, you can use drones and satellites. That's all good, but you've, you've set your baseline. So those are the kind of things that help build these projects and make them very strong. 
That's fast. We did mention we really like Pachama, right? <laughs> yeah. So, I, so the idea is like we uh, when we we create this like base data, right? So you know that there's a tree there, um, and as remote sensing technology improves, you can you can do you know successive passes of higher and higher quality, right? So let's say we just you know Pachama knows that there's a right. tree there, right? And and as they get better at remote sensing and AI. Um, they can make more accurate evaluation of the carbon stock that's there. Because right now you just have to kind of look and guess, right? Um, but if you know certain ground truth data that you just collect at the point of, that you establish at the point of planting, because the nice thing about location tracking of trees is that's way easier than location tracking of people, right? Like people care about privacy and they right. move around. Trees are essentially public, right? Satellites pass over, there's a tree, and trees right. don't move. And so, and so you have that base database of every tree. And so, you know, there's a tree here. And so you take, you know, successive scans, right? Pictures with drones, uh, satellites. You could even establish like bounty programs for someone to go out and take a picture, right? Um, and that allows for that sort of basis for a much more improved carbon verification regime globally. Um, and, and one of, you know, carbon accounting, accurate carbon accounting in the field of trees is, is one of the stumbling blocks to maturing the carbon market, right, for, especially for reforestation. But with this, we set up the basis for extremely high granularity, extreme, extremely accurate carbon accounting um, that will mature over the next decade, right, as the sensing technology gets better. But, like, you just, you just have to know that location. You got to know there's a tree. I mean, I mean just, just speaking about Pachama and how that that connection ties back to what you guys are working on. It's like you guys solve the early part of actually queuing up reforestation projects. Pachama verifies those projects happen. Then there's a company, Nori. Nori in, helps enable carbon offsets markets and transparency. And I, I just want to make sure we can get all of you guys in one single room for 10 hours every day just lock you guys in there we'll feed you we'll give you water but i just feel like the outcome of those uh those conversations for like a one-week hackathon might turn out to, to turn out with solutions that uh i don't think anyone else can think of through just zoom calls but uh that that's that's what kind of inspires me there but what really caught my eye is the software angle and tying to what Jill was saying about how this technology is kind of helping speed up the process, make sure things are available, transparent to you. The thing that really catches my eye is, is there a way to standardize? Or is the globe that different that we cannot standardize a specific process? Because it feels like, hey, if there's a standardization that eventually occurs, you guys build the software of each part, Jill's technical experience walking into every forest and just going, I'm Jill, I'm the super, uh, I'm the superwoman here, I'm going to come in and I am going to show you exactly how to do it. It's easy as one, two, three, or 10 steps, whatever it might be. What is that process like? Is standardization what you're trying to get to? Or is it more along the lines of getting to a point where there's a dynamic framework and that alone provides the efficiencies in process enough such that reforestation 
is something that can be done anywhere, be it a desalination project in a, des in a desert or a deserted area where you're going to be bringing, you know, solar panels, desalination systems, and planting trees and, you know, trying to rebuild that area, or going to an existing forest that has been destroyed by whatever it might be, deforestation or otherwise, and then trying to repair that region's biodiversity. How are you thinking about that? I'd like to answer a, a few points on that. Um, one is that some things are universal. So when you talk about seed collection and you talk about the process of preparing seeds for germination or for banking, those protocols are, 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 are universal. So you, you use those same methods. What you do is you take those methods that ensure that you can have a live seed with good germination um, to, to regions, and then you focus on those regions. And those regions have unique species. So that's, that's the approach, is that you can use that. In, with, with a lot of things, you can really standardize them. But re every region is unique and different, and you can, you can adapt them locally as well and you can use the local knowledge and you can use the local conditions to adapt but a lot of things you can standardize and you can you know go very very far to scale okay so then is there because to to Yi's point about potentially using different kinds of canopies or different styles of repair which again excuse my ignorance on this, I probably need to sit down with you guys for hours to understand all of this, but are there differences in the way you think about repairing so that you can get communities back into that region? Or is it more along the lines of, hey, we're, we're doing a reforestation project here, here's what was here before, and here's what we're gonna produce. We're just gonna get this back to normal. But I imagine a deforested area or a area that's been devastated by natural disaster, those are regions where people may have already moved away from or too far away from. So how are you guys thinking about that community angle? Because I think that is something that a lot of people don't think about, and, and you guys are bringing that to light on today's show. Does that influence the decisions of how you reforce that area? Yes, because every region is very unique and special, and and you know you need to look at what are, what is what is the original ecosystem type, what is the land use history, what have people done there, what does you know what is the, the sort of the vision um, for it, for that land. And, and, and you need to sort of, there's, there's a lot of benefits you need to, that you need to support. You need to support, we, Terraformation supports a lot of sustainability goals that the UN has, has put forth, the SDGs. So you're supporting communities' livelihoods. You're supporting the ecosystem services that these forests provide by, by creating them. And, and you're supporting wildlife habitats. So there's all these bottom lines. It's not just one thing. And when you do that, you really build success and you build sustainability and resilience. So the, the closer you get to native forests, the better off you are in terms of resiliency. Because if the farther you get from native forests, then 
plants that are non-native, especially from another continent or something like that. That's one of the big mistakes that people make in planting is they try to go for, for just speed. They, they select species that grow fast, but then they crash either because of insect predation or they're, they're not resilient to climate change. So, so you really do need to think about it's so very regional and that that's important. Got it. Yeah, well, one just just to come back to the to the standards question, um, even though uh, each project may be different, right? Like a, a mangrove project is going to be very different than like you know a, a project where you're mis mixing you know nut tree agroforestry together with hardwood or something like that. Um, those are those are going to obviously involve very different plant species, very different forestry plants, but. The template for the data that needs to be collected, like that data infrastructure that, that that Jill was talking about, that's common across all the different projects. And so that's why we would say we think we'll be successful in creating an open source software platform for collection of the GPS coordinate the, that this tree went in the ground, the species designation of it, um, uh, any like local varietal designations, right? Like the, the, the location that the seeds that that tree was, uh, was germinated from, right? Like those are very common data elements that we think we can build an open source platform around and then let people customize the interface to however they, they, they would like the, the, the presentation layer to, to, to be. Um, uh, or, or, to, or to, I don't know, take it and OEM it, like rebrand re, re it to whatever your forestry company wants to be, right? I think that's totally fine as long as there are some common standards around the data capture um, that will enable these the, these carbon-based business models or other business models to, to be pursued. And, and that, that standardization helps you then enable more communities to make decisions because they don't need as much specific knowledge as Jill has but now they can be abstracted away from the process, which allows you to train more people, which you're leveraging technology to hit those 10x every single year goals. That's... Yeah, and um, the, uh, the many, many different projects and the huge variety that we see, um, have, there's, like, there's two sides to that. Um, and one of them makes, is what makes global forest restoration unique. The first is, of course, that we have this additional uh, I don't know what we call it, like cost of adapting to the huge variety um, of people, communities, um, cultural standards everywhere, right? That, that, that is not to be underestimated. Um, I worked on internationalization at two prior companies, and that is a, that's an issue that very few people understand unless you do it. And it's just that like humans are very, very, very different um, and you will need to adapt to local conditions like people there, you know, users on the ground, communities on the ground, they will tell you what they need, right? You can't go in ex expecting anything. However, um, and that is, that is a huge undertaking. It's very hard. It's not to be under. However, our willingness to um, sort of confront that and build a flexible system that adapts and works with every local community everywhere in different biomes um, is a reflection of how, as a solution, massive forest restoration or global forest restoration is one of the most inclusive solutions to climate change. And, and I don't just say that because inclusive, inclusivity is a buzzword sure. today. It's actually really important. 
because if you have a solution that can only be implemented by a relatively small number of people or countries or corporations, for example, an extremely high-tech solution that requires specialized components, that makes it more brittle. Because if you only have like a dozen companies that can produce this special machine, and there's an economic, there's some sort of macroeconomic disruption in their supply chain, boom, now that solution is threatened, right? And, and you know, when you're saving the planet, you, you need maximum safety and reliability, right? With massive forest restoration, um, we may have to, you know, work with a huge variety of people, but that also means almost every community everywhere in the world can participate. That makes it a very resilient solution, right? Any one project that fails is more okay because other projects will succeed, right? And, and that is not the case with much more centralized and what you call like less inclusive solutions, right? Like because everyone can work on it. There, there's certain countries that can certainly contribute a lot to native forest restoration, but they wouldn't be able to build a direct air capture plant, right? Um, and, and so this being this, this huge variety of projects has a cost because you just can't like standardize everything, right? Like engineers love to have a single standard. Absolutely. It's like, boom, right? Right. You can't standardize everything, but it also is an advantage to the financing because historically, the problem with forest financing is not that forestry projects did not have revenue streams. They do. It's that every single one is different. And so the rate at which money can go into those projects is slowed because every single project has to be in, like evaluated independently, individually, right? And you have, you have to like figure out what the investment risk is and what the payoffs are, right? And those sorts of investments are just, they're just slow. You can't do a lot of them. But if there's a very large number of projects and a very large diversity of projects and they're bundled, the risk can be aggregated. Now you can rate the average risk of a project. You can have one project fail due to any number of reasons, right? Or there's a fire in one region, but you're never going to have that everywhere, right? So now you know the average risk. You can average out all those risks. And so one of the reasons why we're trying to accelerate and scale these projects is that there's a, there's a sort of like phase change that happens. If you have a lot of these projects, it suddenly makes it possible to turn them into an asset class where the execution risk can be diversified away, you know, by like bundling them together, right? Like these, all these projects, you know, they can even be like collectively working together. It's like, you know, a project in Uganda is allied with a project in Ecuador, right? And, and allied with like eight other and projects spreading risk. and they diversify. Yeah, they can spread the risk, right? And so this also, this builds global community. It's incredibly inclusive because anyone everywhere, you know, anywhere can participate. Um, and instead of like one central, you know, organization going in and telling everyone what to do, it actually becomes people helping other people because ultimately what will happen is like the information exchange about, you know, how do we deal with this species in this biome, right? Like this experience might be relevant to some other project, right? So it becomes much more peer to peer, becomes resilient. That's, so I, I'm, I'm going to wait for the terraformation bond announcement to happen. Um, that's going to be, <laughs> I'm sure everyone else in the audience as well um, wants to wait, uh, hear that hopefully soon. Um, because like we're, we're already seeing so much in climate finance, climate focused neobanks 
and so on and so forth. And that in and of itself is another one hour conversation. But one of the a to totally shameless plug here, okay. right? Uh, if you don't want to wait for the bond announcement, uh, you can participate in Terraformation's mission today by going to republic.co slash Terraformation. Awesome. <laughs> we'll put that as the first link in the bio so that you guys can all check that out. Um, one of the <laughs> key things that I love, but I guess in closing, I love to give you all three the floor to either selfishly promote anything about Terraformation, jobs that you're hiring for, the crowdfunding campaign, or anything that you would like to drive people to, the floor is yours. Well, well, I think he's already mentioned the crowdfunding campaign. Um, so that's at republic.co slash Terraformation. Um, the purpose of that is uh, we, we want to make this available to as many people as possible because we think climate change affects everyone. Um, and so while we think the odds are long, the payoff is huge. Um, not just, you know, for the world, obviously, but economically, we are, we are creating, you know, what would be a huge era of economic Absolutely. growth. Um, and so, so we, we want to allow as many people to participate in that, not just like a small number of wealthy investors. Um, that's that's the crowdfunding thing. There's another thing that I sort of want to promote that I'm doing, which is uh, I'm running a solar punk art contest. Um, and the reason for that is, and I want to- Are we getting into that, NFTs? Um, no, 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 no. Okay. It's actually just, I'm, I'm giving out cash prizes to original solar punk okay. art. Um, and, I, and I think that that's because um, I think many depictions of the future these days are very gritty and dark, dystopian, uh, and, and just sort of negative, right? And I, I think that like, yeah, I can talk about how the future can be better, how we can, we can really fix things, we can create this beautiful planet. But we also need art that expresses that. Um, and I think the solar punk aesthetic is a great way of sort of expressing, you know, the fusion of the natural world regenerated combined with technology, huh. right? Like we're, we're living in harmony with the world, um, bringing it back, but also aiding it, right? With the, you know, the products of our mind, which is technology. Um, and, and so I'm just like giving out cash prizes to original solar punk art. Uh, that contest is ongoing at least through the end of the month. Um, awesome. So shoot so, me over that link yeah, and it'll be in the description. <laughs> so two ways to get sure. involved. Okay, you I, do the I, solar I, punk contest. You win that from Yishan, and then you take those funds and you put it into the crowdfunding campaign. If none of you guys <laughs> understood that message, that's what that effective campaign I, is for. But uh, okay, okay. <laughs> I mean, and and as much as as much as we can talk about sort of the economic or the the sci-fi sort of benefits of uh, of Terraformation's approach, I I don't know. For me personally, like I would I would just want to return everybody listening back to. I don't know, like a, a place of more heartfelt emotion. Um, that's certainly, I think, where I, I started from. Um, in uh, 2019 was actually when I really made the decision personally to like switch from technology into, into climate. Um, and my oldest kid that, that year was turning 12. Sure. Um, and they start to ask these really interesting questions, right? Like, hey, hey, Baba, what should I do when I grow up, right? And like growing up in Silicon Valley, I think it's a tempting answer to say like, yeah, you should learn to code or learn to design things, right? Like launch an app or whatever, right? But like 
on, and whatever, and I'm not poo-pooing those things. Those are, those are great and wonderful skills. Um, my kid likes to draw and loves architecture. I'm like, that's, that's an awesome set of skills too. But like literally that year, I was really struggling with those kinds of conversations. I'm like, I don't like, dude, I'm sorry, but I think our generation is like really fucked up your, sorry, bleep, messed up your, your, your food chain. Right. And so I don't know if, if you should learn hydroponics and like vertical farming, is, is that, is that like a better career path? I don't know. Right. Um, and it's, I think it's just really hard as a parent to give advice to anybody in a, in a future generation uh, or in a growing generation, if you don't, you yourself don't have confidence, right, in what the state of the world is gonna be like. And so more than anything else, I just really, I, I want people to look at terraformation, uh, to look at this whole burgeoning industry now of, of companies and organizations that are trying to focus on, on you know, solution, practical, implementable solutions and to have confidence, to have faith that like, this is not something that just like nameless government bureaucrats are either gonna take care of or not on your behalf, but rather this is something that like just regular people, like we can, we can do this together and you can plug in to a company like Terraformation or a company like Pachama or, or, or others and, and actually make the solution happen. And we can do this. We got this humanity. <laughs> that's, that's a... Yes. That's a positive tone that uh, I think that's the way I want to leave it <laughs> for part one. Um, I, I, I do feel like the next generation that's coming up, there's a lot of people who care about climate and I'm sure most of those people will outperform everyone who's currently in the space. And I can't wait for that day. For sure. Awesome. Well, guys, I really appreciate your time today. This has been a blast of a marathon. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you, Sarah. Really Thank appreciate you. the opportunity. Thank hey, thanks so much for tuning in to this episode. If you are listening on Spotify, please make sure to add this to your favorite episodes and also consider sharing it on social. And if you're tuning in on Apple Podcasts, Make sure to leave a review with uh, your thoughts from this episode and, of course, to also share and subscribe to this show. The Green Room is brought to you by The Impact. There's a free newsletter that you can find on readtheimpact.com, which shares plenty of insights as well as brand new startups that we're finding that are pre-Series A, which could be opportunities for you, your fund, or potential co-founders to really want to check out and learn from. So with that being said, this is Swarnav Espajari from The Impact. It's been great to have you, and I'll see you in the next one.